Well, hello, men. Good morning to you on this Friday morning, or if you're watching this at a different time, good afternoon or good evening even. I'm just grateful that we have the opportunity to learn from God's Word together. I would like to encourage you with two opportunities. One is, if you're watching this Friday, this evening, Friday, May the 29th, is going to be our online Evensong service at the chapel, and it's open to anybody. Our choral ministry director at the chapel, Bill Price, has put together a wonderful service. And as we head into this weekend, which is known as Pentecost weekend for the in the history of the church, it would be a wonderful way to celebrate Pentecost weekend. So you can go to the chapel's website, and you'll see an icon there that points you to our Evensong service. I would also like to encourage all of you to take advantage of the opportunity to fill out the survey that's been shared in the emails that we're sending these videos out with. The survey gives us the opportunity to hear from you as well as helps us to understand and pray about how we can best plan for the fall as we think about what we'll study next, as well as an opportunity for you to voice a desire, maybe even to meet during the summer. So please take advantage of that survey and we would love to hear from you. Well, we come to the second to last video, or the second to last lesson, I should say, in our entire study of the Gospel of Mark. I have it in my notes as the 32nd lesson, and we will have one more lesson next week just to tie up the Gospel, but our plan, my plan, is today to walk through the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And as we've been learning, the Gospel of Mark shows us how to serve and suffer like our Savior. And we've spent a lot of time looking at Jesus as he came to serve. And then we've also spent these last few weeks looking at how Jesus came to suffer. And we've looked at his passion and his suffering. And today we get to look at a very exciting chapter, which has Jesus through his suffering to his resurrection and ultimately to his ascension. And I'll talk about that in just a little bit. But as we think about how this gospel should challenge us to live our lives as men and as followers of Christ. We know that Mark 10.45 tells us that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came to serve and Jesus came to suffer. So we get to this 30-second lesson, and it's entitled this, Resurrection, Presentation, Commission, and ascension. Four different parts of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. I encourage you to open your Bibles to the last chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be looking at those four different sections, resurrection, presentation, commission, and ascension. To give you context, by the way, if you would like, there is a PowerPoint slide or slides that you can look at that should be linked in the email. Um, I'm going to reference those slides a little bit if you want to check out the pictures or the notes, but those will summarize what I'm teaching on today. Um, this is the, uh, the, what we'll read today is an account of the very first Easter Sunday in the history of the world. And as some scholars date it, April the 5th of AD 33, the very first Easter. Um, ironically, the first Easter in the history of the world often gets portrayed in the final chapters of the Gospels because we know that that is, the story did not end with Jesus' death, but it ended with his resurrection to new life. And uh, this is fascinating. We'll be thinking about the Gospel of Mark. How does the Gospel of Mark end? And what are the ramifications 
for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because, guys, if we, um, if we really believe that Jesus is alive, if we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then that belief changes everything. And it makes all the difference in our lives. Last week, Max did a fantastic job of pointing us to the suffering death of Jesus Christ. And we get to look at the glorious resurrection of Christ today. Now, in the slides, I included um, two pictures, um, pictures of the tomb of Christ. And there's some debate on this. Some believe that the original tomb of Christ is located underneath an altar and a slab in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is located in Jerusalem. And I actually saw a very fascinating National Geographic documentary on this tomb, uh, on this sepulcher. Inside this church, you have this smaller building called an edicule, and it needed to be restored because it had been damaged over centuries. And so they actually had to remove the slab from over the what they believe is the bed of the tomb where Jesus Christ's body was laid. And according to legend, Emperor Constantine's mother, Helen, went to Jerusalem because of her son's newfound faith in Jesus Christ and hers as well. And she found what was told to her was the original tomb of Jesus Christ. And so she had a church built around it. And that's the church today of the Holy Sepulchre. You'll see another picture in the PowerPoint presentation that's known as the Garden Tomb that some say was the actual tomb of Jesus Christ. And some of you who've been to Israel have seen maybe both of these sites. I don't know for sure. It would seem to me that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is over the original tomb of Christ and the Garden Tomb would have been outside the city wall. Or, or, well, both would have been outside the original city wall. But the Garden Tomb does seem to be like it was maybe a more modern um, more modern uh, representation, but that the original Church of the Sepulchre is over the original tomb of Christ. But anyway, it's, it's fascinating to think about these, these ideas. Uh, the bottom line is Jesus was buried in a tomb somewhere, and he's no longer there because he's alive. So um, looking at our outline of Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 20, we'll be looking again at Christ's resurrection, verses 1 through 8, his presentation, verses 9 through 14, his commission, verses 15 through 18, and then his ascension to conclude, verses 19 and 20. And we'll see what we can get through, but I'm really excited. So uh, I'm just going to offer a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into Mark chapter 16. Father, thanks. Please uh, use the words I share to sharpen me, to sharpen us as men, to have a deeper understanding of your love and of the truth of your gospel that changes our lives each and every day. Thank you for the reality of the resurrected Christ, our Savior. And I pray that these truths will be clear, that you will use whatever I say to inspire and encourage us to be followers of Christ and to walk faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's jump in to Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, and we'll look at the resurrection. I start by reading with verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed 
And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Wow, this this is interesting to think about uh, these women and what they saw at the tomb of Jesus on that first Easter morning. A few items of note to think through. These are the same women who witnessed Jesus' crucifixion. They're listed at the end or towards the end of Mark chapter 15. Mary Mary Magdalene, as well as Mary, the mother of James, and a woman named Salome. And so these women were faithful. And what they were doing is they were seeking to take spices to anoint the body of Jesus. Uh, the, The Jews did not embalm their bodies, but the spices were used to help with the the stench of the body as it was decaying and to keep that stench at a minimum. And so interestingly, we find that these spices, the word for spices in the Greek language, for those who are interested, this stuff kind of interests me, is literally aroma. It is the word aroma where we get our English word aroma for fragrance. And these spices were intended to mask the stench of Jesus' body. Um, And it was a practice that Jews did at burial, but they had an interesting problem because they knew that this stone was in front of the tomb. And it doesn't sound like they had a plan. Maybe they were hoping to ask somebody to help with the moving of the stone, Um, but amazing, and they had a very practical question. Who's going to move this stone away from the tomb? And as is often the case, God has a supernatural solution to our practical problems. And that problem was solved through the moving of the stone, a large stone, in fact, that they would not have been able to move. Now, we read in the account from Matthew of the resurrection that there was an earthquake. And as we can put the pieces together, it seems that this earthquake was uh, the result of God's divine hand rolling the stone away. Maybe it was the angel that we see here that rolled the stone away. In one way, shape, or form, supernaturally, the stone was moved. And I believe that the resurrected Christ stood up and walked out. So, uh, but seeing this angel was alarming to these women. What would seem to be the most uh, exciting event in the history of not just our Christian faith, but the world, the resurrected Christ, causes these women to be alarmed and they're frightened. Um, But what we need to know, guys, is that this event of Christ's resurrection is the heart, really, uh, of the highlight, I should say, of the gospel. Uh, far too often, I know that I have reflected on the death of Christ, not that you can reflect too much on the death of Christ, but I've sort of left it there. Jesus died for my sins. Yes, that is true. But if death were the end of the story, it's not good news. In fact, I remember a seminary professor once saying that a dead Savior is no Savior at all. Because if Jesus were still in the tomb, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we would still be dead in our sins. So the resurrection is the good news that Jesus is alive. In fact, um, Tom Constable, who is a, a professor that I have enjoyed and a scholar, writes this about the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the climax of Mark's gospel as it is the high point of all the other gospel accounts. Jesus vindicated his claims of to being the divine son of God, not simply a human Messiah, by his resurrection from the dead. 
Guys, Jesus' resurrection from the dead shows that his sacrifice was acceptable. Jesus' resurrection from the dead shows that he was the divine son of God. Jesus' resurrection from the dead showed and proved that his words were true and he can be trusted. But even um, it's even more than that, as I'll get to, because Jesus' resurrection from the dead gives us power to live victoriously today. And I'll talk about that towards the end of our time a little bit more. What I find very interesting is that Jesus told, or the angel told these women that they were to tell the disciples and Peter, with a special emphasis on on Peter because he had denied Jesus, Um, but the angel wanted the women to tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus was going ahead of them to Galilee, just as he would said. And these were words that were predicted by, by Jesus himself, that he would die and be raised, and then his disciples would later see him. So what's interesting about Galilee is that we find, as Mark is winding down his gospel here, is that Jesus was going to be preparing his men for the mission that they would embody. And Galilee is the place where Jesus' disciples' training began in the northern part of Israel. And this is where their final lessons would be given by Jesus. Um, And he would also continue to teach them outside of Jerusalem as well. But he wanted to start their final segment of their training back in Galilee where their training had begun. Uh, A quotation I came across from David Rhodes and Donald Mitchie from their book, Mark as Story, reads as follows. The final scene points back to Galilee, back to the beginning of the story. The young man's message at the tomb with instructions for the disciples to go to Galilee suggests perhaps a fresh start for the disciples or for anyone in the future of the story world who chooses to follow Jesus. By implication, this fresh journey will result in the same complications and the same hostility met in Galilee by John the Baptist and then by Jesus. Furthermore, Galilee points away from Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, toward Gentile nations where Jesus had said the good news was to be proclaimed before the end came. So Galilee is already, Jesus is already trying to set the course for the history and the development of his kingdom, that it wouldn't just be centered in Jerusalem, but that the gospel would go to all the nations. And that is why Jesus was going to meet his disciples in Galilee for their final round of their discipleship training of all the lessons that Jesus had had given and had shared with them. So interestingly, as, as, as this section concludes, the women are afraid, they're astonished, they're terrified. There's a lot of frightful language here. And they run away and, and the text says they don't tell every, anyone for they were afraid. In fact, Uh, as we'll get to in just a minute, talking about the ending of the Gospel of Mark, it's a very strange word to end this section with. It's the word uh, for. So literally, it could mean uh, they were afraid for. It's just an odd way to conclude. And so um, we kind of have to ask ourselves, what is the... uh, what is the, the author trying to say? What is Mark trying to say in this moment? It doesn't seem like a very heroic way to conclude with the women running off in, in, in fright. Um, but it's almost as if uh, this abrupt ending right here draws the readers in. Uh, the New English Translation Bible study note on this verse reads as follows. Uh, the readers must now ask themselves, what will I do with Jesus? If I do not accept him in his suffering, I will not see him in his glory. 
And so I believe that the author, that Mark, is almost asking his readers, what are you going to do with the end of this story? Are you going to uh, be silent and run off in fear? Are you going to have courage and share and have faith in this resurrected Messiah and speak up? Will you speak up or will you be silent? Will you have faith or will you be afraid? Now, again, much more can be said, and I'll come back to some practical ramifications for our spiritual life on the resurrection. But uh, just a, a bit of an excursus here, because as you probably see in your Bible, as I see it in my Bible, that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 6 through t- Mark 16, verses uh, 9 through 20, which I'll talk about. Uh, this gets into a discipline that scholars call textual criticism. What that means is it is the study of the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, just like if I write something down, sort of like the telephone game, let, let's say I tell you something in your ear, you tell it to the next person, you tell it to the next person. That telephone game gets passed around a circle, and the message that comes back to the original sender of the message is likely to be different unless you're paying, paying close attention. When the manuscripts of the Bible were uh, copied, from time to time, because of being human, the copyists and the scribes made mistakes. And what would happen is they would reproduce these manuscripts, and there would be some of these mistakes copied over. So uh, textual criticism looks at one manuscript versus another manuscript and tries to determine what was the original wording and the original version of the original Gospels and and the New Testament as well. It applies to the Old Testament too. Um, But we have some very good records of the New Testament and ancient manuscripts. So um, some of the oldest manuscripts do not include the ending of Mark's Gospel uh, for verses 9 through 20. Some of those, those old manuscripts end at verse 8. Now, um, what's interesting is that the vocabulary and the style of verses 9 through 20 is different than the rest of Mark's gospel. And um, scholars have talked about how to account for this. And I want to encourage you that we do not have to doubt the authenticity of the end of Mark's gospel simply because it's not included in some of the oldest manuscripts. I do know that some church leaders from the second century, um, less than 150 years after Jesus, and about 100 years after Mark would have originally written his gospel, they do cite the longer ending of the gospel of Mark. So we know that it was considered important in the church, um, but, uh, but it's also possible that as Mark was listening to Peter dictate the life of ministry of Jesus, Mark would write that down, or maybe even Peter had a hand in writing it down, that maybe after Peter finished, maybe Mark took some of his own additional notes and just happened to write in a different style. We don't know for sure. Um, and there's other evidence that, that these, could have been, these verses could have been included in some of those older manuscripts but may have been left off for one reason or another. But we don't have to doubt the authenticity. In fact, I am convinced that if the Spirit of God wanted to inspire an author, whether it was Mark or even somebody else, to write these words so that we might be edified, that he can do that. And so um, I want us to have confidence in the scriptures and know that the longer ending of Mark, which we'll talk about in just a moment, has much to say to us even today. So what does the longer ending of Mark have to say to us? Well, we move to uh, Christ's presentation, which is the second part of our lesson today, verses 9 through 13. Now, When he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they they mourned and wept. 
But when they heard that he was alive and that he had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Interestingly, uh, these verses can be run parallel to John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18, as well as Luke chapter 24, verses 10 and 11. So we have Mary Magdalene, and Jesus appears to her, and she goes to the disciples, and she says, I have seen him. And they're grieving because they, they think that their, their Messiah is dead. And um, interestingly, they do not accept her message. In other words, if we go back to some of our lessons from earlier in the Gospel of Mark, they did not have ears to hear the good news that she was proclaiming. And as a result of that, they did not believe her. Now, this word believe becomes an important word in these final verses of the Gospel of Mark. I want you to note how many times it's repeated. I think it's repeated six times. Well, let's look at the next appearance that Mark records in verse 12 and 13. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Again, there's that word believe. They had, they had a hard time believing. This is an account that is parallel to Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, which is a well-known account of the two disciples on the way to a village called Emmaus. Mark happens to record it in a very short segment here. But again, these disciples go back to the rest of the disciples and say, we've seen him, but they didn't believe it. So much like doubting Thomas in John chapter 20, these disciples had a hard time believing when someone was trying to tell them, Jesus is alive, I've seen him, he appeared to me. Well, those are the appearances of Jesus or the presentations of Jesus as he appeared to, these, to Mary Magdalene and then to these two followers. Um, well, he appears again in the third section of our lesson today, and this is Christ's commission, his commission. And uh, this is verses 14 through 18, which read as follows. Afterward, he appeared, there's that word appeared again, to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim to the uh, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents and their, with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover." What's oh, important to note here, again, with this theme of believing versus unbelieving, is that Jesus offers one of the harshest rebukes that he has to his disciples in the entire gospel in verse uh, 14, because he rebuked them not only for their unbelief, but for their hardness of heart. They were being told truth, but they failed and they allowed their hearts to be hardened to that truth. And maybe this has been your experience from time to time, as you have had a friend and you've tried to share the good news of Jesus Christ with that friend, but they don't believe and their heart is hardened to that truth for one reason or another. We know that 2 Corinthians 4.4 tells us that the God of this age, who is Satan, the great deceiver, has um, blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they might not see the glory of God in Christ. But hardened heart and a failure to believe is what Jesus tells his disciples here. Maybe Maybe, friends, for you, maybe today, you are having a hard time believing, and maybe your heart is hardened to the truth that Jesus Christ 
is alive, as friends have tried to share that with you. Uh, But this idea of belief, and the word that's repeated six times, as we'll see as we go and look at these verses, it's, it's mentioned in verse 11, it's mentioned in verse 13, it's mentioned again in verse 14, as well as in verse 16. Uh, and and twice in verse 16, once in verse 17. Six times the word believe is here. This obviously is a very key word. And Jesus shares, uh, uh, similar to the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, Jesus now tells his disciples that they are to go and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. It's almost as if, and I should say it is, that the gospel is so central to the transformation and the life change of individual people that the entire creation is impacted by the proclamation of the gospel because the entire creation needs the good news of Jesus because the entire creation, not just human beings, but all that we see is fallen and is groaning and is longing for recreation and the new creation to come. And the gospel is central to that process and that transformation. Now, Jesus says those who believe will be saved, but those who do not believe will be condemned. Another uh, indictment against his disciples for failing to believe. And this reminds me of John 3.18, where Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus, says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, one point of clarification here. Because Jesus says to his disciples in verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Now, note that he doesn't say, but whoever does not believe and not baptized will be condemned. So we need to understand here that um, baptism is not a condition for salvation. We understand that baptism is an outward expression of an inner transformation. It's an outward proclamation of an inner faith in Jesus Christ. In the early days, we see this with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, and we see this through uh, other parts of the book of Acts. When someone believed, almost immediately, as soon as they could, they were baptized. And so the act of baptism was closely associated with the belief because it was that outward expression of the inner profession of faith, but it was not a condition of salvation. So when Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, He's not saying that you have to be baptized to be saved. He's saying you have to believe to be saved. And oftentimes, mostly in the early church especially, you would follow that that salvation moment of faith up by being baptized to express it. So um, do not worry. If you have not been baptized, you can still go to heaven. The key is believing in Jesus Christ. Now, I will say if you haven't been baptized as a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to do it as a step of obedience But that's a discipleship issue. It's not a salvation issue. Um, So just to close out this section before looking at the final section of our lesson today, we read some of these verses about um, casting out demons and speaking in new tongues and handling snakes and healing. Uh, And we we maybe are a little uncomfortable with that, wondering, do those things still happen today? Some people believe they do. Some people believe that they don't. I do believe that God still works miracles however he decides to. 
I do also believe that those who intentionally handle snakes in church services are probably missing the point of what Mark is getting at here. What Mark is saying, as strange as it may sound to our 21st century ears, is that God will protect and provide for his people as they take the gospel forth. Now, of course, we know that those who proclaim the gospel, including most of the disciples, had to be, they were killed and they were martyred for their faith. So this is not a health and wealth gospel that says, if you preach the gospel, you'll be protected from everything. But in the early stages of it, certainly that's what God promised his people that he would do. Um, well, let's look at the last two verses of the gospel of Mark, and that is Christ's ascension, verses 19 and 20. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs, those signs that he had already mentioned in verse 17. Um, you can look at this ascension moment as similar to Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. You can look at this ascension moment as being very significant, happening 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, just so you know, um, Ascension Day is actually a, a day that's celebrated, not necessarily in all church contexts, but some churches will celebrate and have celebrated Ascension Day. In fact, Ascension Day was this past Thursday, May the 21st this year. And uh, I had the opportunity through one of our digital devotions and prayer led by Bill Price, our choral ministry director, to actually meditate a little bit more on the importance of the Ascension. I had not really taken time to think about the significance. The resurrection or the, the crucifixion of Christ is important. And I've already told you, I've, I've had some time of reflecting on the importance of the resurrection of Christ because Jesus is alive. That's significant. But the uh, ascension of Jesus Christ is also such an important part of the gospel story. In fact, it's included in the Nicene Creed that you may have recited as a young person, and I did too. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. The right hand being that place of power and authority and strength, showing that Jesus is seated, waiting until he returns. So as I think about the ascension of Jesus, and by the way, in the PowerPoint, I included some um, depictions. There are lots of famous paintings of the ascension. I even included one that Rembrandt did, I think, in the 17th century. But uh, the ascension of Jesus is important because if Jesus doesn't, if Jesus is raised but doesn't ascend to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, then first of all, he's a liar because he, would, he said he would do that. If Jesus doesn't ascend, then he doesn't send the Spirit, of whom he says, it's to your benefit that I go so that I might send a better helper to you. If Jesus doesn't ascend, then he can't come back. And we know all of these teachings are essential to our faith. So Jesus' ascension is essential to the gospel story as well. So um, what you might, uh, and, and I'm so thankful to, to reflect on that. I encourage you to reflect on that as well. Now, what's interesting in verse 19 is that he is referred to as Lord Jesus. It says, so then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them. Finally, Jesus is, is recognized after his resurrection, right before his ascension, fully as Lord. That is his identity to his disciples. And then what I also want you to recognize from verse 20 is significant, is that they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. The Lord worked with them. This is Jesus, the Lord Jesus, working with his disciples. He doesn't leave them alone. He is still with them through the presence of his spirit so that they might 
continue to proclaim his gospel. Uh, that was a significant, um, a significant recognition in my mind, too, that Jesus is working with them. And so uh, what we find is that the gospel of Mark ends where it began. It began in verse 1 with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and it ends with uh, the gospel being proclaimed as the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of God works with his disciples and his followers. So I'm um, really honing it in here. What is the main point and the application that, I, that we can draw from this? And that's this, and this is in the PowerPoint. The gospel has power to save those who believe. It is the good news, not just good advice. It's not just, hey, you should rotate your tires every however many thousands of miles, or hey, you should go to the dentist every six months. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's a moment in history that happened, and you have to decide, and I have to decide, what are we going to do with this moment in history in our lives? Am I going to uh, live my life differently? Am I going to allow it to change me? Because the gospel is not just good advice. This same power, the power of the gospel, equips us to share this good news with others today. And that's where I want to ask us these two questions, because we look at what Jesus said to his disciples, and we look at the women and how they were afraid. But the first question is, are we willing to believe? Are we willing to believe that this is true? As we think about uh, these truths and what Jesus testifies about himself, I know that at times we can struggle to believe that. From time to time, I struggle to believe it. Are our hearts hardened in any way? Or will we believe what the Bible tells us to be true about Jesus Christ and about who we are in Jesus Christ as a result of our faith in Christ? Are we willing to believe that we are forgiven? Are you willing to believe that you are a child of the King? Are you willing to believe, as I have to remind my children and myself, that Jesus loves you, that Jesus is with you, that Jesus is the King? Yes, even through a coronavirus pandemic, Jesus still loves you. He is with you and he is the king. He reigns supremely even over the coronavirus. Do you believe that Jesus has died for your sins and that he will return again? Do you believe that he provides you power and victory to live the victorious life that he calls you to live because of his resurrection? I'm reminded of Romans 8, 11 which reads as follows. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus, Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you guys believe this? Do I believe this? Do we believe this about Jesus Christ? That's the power of the gospel. And when we believe in it, that power can transform us and lead us to victorious life and give us courage to do what I'm asking us to think about next. First is, are you willing to believe? The second is, are you willing to share? Are you willing to share this good news with those around you? I've been thinking more and praying more about how I need to be engaged in that discipline more myself. It's so easy to just talk about Christian things with Christian people, and that's fine. We need to encourage one another, but are you and I willing to share this good news? I think about Max's lesson from last week, how he said that um, some were being called to believe, like the centurion at the cross, but some were be call being called to act and take action, like Joseph of Arimathea, and he gave his own tomb for Jesus, that Jesus might be buried. In the same way, are we willing to believe, but are we also willing to act? Are we willing to share the hope 
in Jesus Christ that we have. Here's the encouragement to us as I begin to wind us down here, guys. Um, We don't labor alone. The text tells us that the Lord worked with his disciples and the Lord continues to work with us as his disciples in the 21st century, just as he did in the first century through the presence of his Holy Spirit. I'm reminded of the words of 1 Corinthians 3, 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Guys, all of us have a role to play in the advancement of God's kingdom here on earth. And he empowers us, he equips us, because he works with us. Do you believe this? Are we willing to believe this? Are we willing to work with him as he works with us? And ultimately, are we willing to serve and suffer like our Savior? So thank you so much for, uh, for time, for time in the Word. I pray this has been a blessing to you. It's got me excited. As we turn next week to our final lesson, just be reminded that Mark's gospel shows us how to serve and suffer like our Savior. And next week, we will have our final lesson on the gospel of Mark, where we will wrap up the gospel and draw some conclusions to our study. Again, I encourage you tonight to go to our website at the chapel for our Evensong service. And I also encourage you to fill out that survey so that we might have your input and feedback on how we can continue to get, to get better in ministering and serving the men of our community so that we might share Christ with them too. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend.